Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. It's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. I am so grateful that you tuned in. I am recording our episodes via Zoom since we are still not back in our office yet. And I have to say, I love that uh, my recordings are like free therapy. So I hope they're as helpful for you as they are for me. This week's episode features Doreen Block. She is the Makeup Museum Executive Director. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Alicia Grande. She's the CEO and founder of Grande Cosmetics. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be with Doreen Block. She is the Executive Director of the Makeup Museum. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. Doreen, I know our listeners can't see the backgrounds behind you, but they can if they go to our social and they'll be able to see a cute video with you. But it looks like you're um, giving me a preview of what the Makeup Museum looks like. That's right. I'm so happy that Zoom enables us to update the background so we can have this fun photo shoot kind of within the Makeup Museum. So um, I'm actually using it as in background. That's our office in New York. Um, which we miss very much. So you can see what it would be like to visit us at our office. And I can see what it'd be like to walk into the Makeup Museum. Exactly. It's almost like the real deal, but I can't wait till we can actually do it in person. So we're looking forward to that. Okay. I want to um, talk a lot about the Makeup Museum because it like brings up incredible things about the history of makeup and beauty in our lives. But let's focus on you first. Okay. Um, so we are in week eight or nine of COVID, I think. Yeah. And um, you are the executive director of the Makeup Museum. You are also the CEO of a technology company. Yes. And um, probably other things that you didn't even mention. So tell me what it's been like for you on um, the technology side and um, balancing those two businesses and your family. And family, too. I have a two-year-old. So that has been different since he is not at daycare more hours of the day. Um, but I mean, look, this crisis has upended everything. I was expecting to be in New York with my co-founders of the Makeup Museum, Caitlin Collins and Rachel Goodwin. And of course, the world has been turned upside down. Uh, that said, you know, I, I take all of this with um, with the knowledge that we're healthy, we're uh, safe. So those are the most important things. Um, and uh, I do have a few businesses and ventures and projects that I run, um, which keep me quite busy. And um, it's also a set of topics that I'm incredibly passionate about. So um, what's nice about the core business that I've uh, been running for almost 10 years, Poshly, is that we're actually distributed by design. I think it's been a few years now that we haven't had an office. So that was a very seamless transition with Makeup Museum. We were expecting to open on May one. And of course, that has been delayed. Uh, but we're still moving things forward in, in terms of the digital content. And it's been really exciting and rewarding to debut a lot of that. So balancing Poshly and um, the fact that you have to delay the opening of Makeup Museum, plus change, of course, like, you know, life as a family. Um, you sound very optimistic and very um, um, bright. And I think the day that you and I had our intake call, I was feeling really low. <laughs> I was having not a good day. Um, 
Has this been um, something that's tested your emotions the way it's tested mine? Absolutely, especially in the first few weeks. Um, just the isolation from family, um, the the fact that it's really upended plans that have been in the works for, you know, in, with Makeup Museum for over a year. So absolutely at the beginning. And, you know, I, I'm a very optimistic person and I don't, um, it's hard for me to um, dwell with feelings of um, negativity in any way. So for me, it's it's been, I think, perhaps pretty quick to just move on to, okay, what can we do? What is the what are the positive steps that we can take? And that has actually led to some really amazing and wonderful opportunities. Um, for example, with Makeup Museum, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we were expecting to open May 1. That didn't happen. We have no idea when we're going to be able to open. But instead of being um, pessimistic about it, we've just said, look, what can we do that honors the mission that the Makeup Museum has to educate, to celebrate, and to inspire? And so um, one thing that had always been on our list was sort of an anthropology project related to the 1950s, which uh, honors the debut exhibition, which is called Pink Jungle. And so we asked people to start submitting stories of um, their loved ones, whether it's their grandmother or their mother, their aunt, a friend um, who were using makeup in the 1950s and to talk with them about makeup. This became such a beautiful campaign. We had uh, dozens and dozens of submissions from all over the world. Um, including photos, video, just text testimonials from people talking about the makeup that their loved ones have used. And it's just such a beautiful way to connect with people when we have to be socially distanced, um, but doing so around something that we're so passionate about, all of us you know, in this community are so passionate about. As part of that campaign, we also then raised money uh, for Meals on Wheels. So just trying to find the, the positive moments in all this and, and to do our part as much as we can. So let's talk about the origin story of the Makeup Museum. Um, take us back to um, when this idea first sparked in your brain. I was in the parking lot driving out of um, the little healthcare center where I take my son for his pediatrician appointments. And, you know, as I mentioned, I've been working in cosmetics for about 10 years now and always on the B2B side. So with Poshly uh, may help to provide this context. We're a consumer insights company that supports brands like L'Oreal. They've been a longtime um, supporter of our work and many, many others in the industry. And um, also, I've been a nerd for all things style and aesthetics. I'm the kid who, you know, in fourth and fifth grade was doing projects on the history of shoes. So this has always been something that I've been extremely passionate about. But it was um, about a year and a half ago, driving away from this pediatrician appointment, that the spark just went off in my mind of, you know, seeing the success of Museum of Ice Cream and a lot of these experiential um, events and pop-ups, I thought, wait a second, how is there not a museum focused on makeup? And, you know, there's definitely blogs and websites that are devoted to vintage makeup and uh, collecting, but there has never before been a 
multi-brand experience that is focused in terms of a permanent institution on the 10,000 years of makeup history. So I started, my first call was to um, my friend and, and former colleague when she was at L'Oreal, um, Caitlin Collins, who is also the former editor of Makeup.com. I said, look, have you heard about anything like this? Has this been tried before? And maybe it just didn't resonate with people. And she's like, no, this is really neat. We have to see if this has legs. And so um, from that, you know, it started really expanding about people telling their friends and, and network in the industry and even beyond. That's how we then got connected with Rachel, who is a very well-known uh, makeup artist. She works with Emma Stone, January Jones, and many others. And um, here we are. We announced in November and we're expecting to open as soon as it's safe to. Do you think if I asked Caitlin, if I took her back in time to this phone call, do you think she'd be like, yeah, I knew at that moment we're actually going to make this happen? <laughs> Knowing me, yes. I'm one of those people that as soon as I birth the idea, you know, it, it has to happen. So um, it's been that way with a lot of other projects and ventures as well. So I wonder if Caitlin knew at that moment, we'll have to call her later and ask, did she know that she was going to be on this ride the whole time? <laughs> that I'm not sure, but also it's just so, I think we, all of us have very much a pinch me moment about this journey so far. And I think what's happened more recently is the realization that this is something that we will be working on for the rest of our lives and um, building really an institution that can live beyond us. That is something that we never would have realized a year and a half ago. And do you not feel that way about Poshly or other work you've done in the past? Like, is that something that you think has an expiration date? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think with especially technology companies, there's definitely more of a typical life cycle with with those ventures, um, you know, from my, it's funny because before I started Poshly, I spent one year in finance. And in particular, I was working on, um, I was working at a company that was doing uh, private asset sales, including secondary market trading of financial assets like Facebook stock, for example. Um, sorry, lots of jargon from those old finance days. But, um, you know, one metric that always stayed in my mind is that the typical time for a technology company to reach an M&A event is seven years and an IPO event, 10 years. Um, so the life cycles are typically not on the order of lifetimes, um, as opposed to the Metropolitan Museum just celebrated its 150th anniversary. Those are the types of timescales, you know, when you're collecting and bringing together um, an archive and collection of objects that date back, um, you know, now the Makeup Museum's collection spans 5,000 years. So you're really um, thinking in a much longer term way than with a technology company. Yeah, I think it's an interesting notion because when I, um, during my day job at Base Beauty, you know, I think about, I've been in business for almost 14 years and we, our mission has always been the same, but the work we do is completely different, right? Like mm -hmm. the marketplace keeps changing and evolving. And like, there's probably a point where we are, like there won't be work for us, right? There'll be robots, you know, <laughs> there'll be AI. And, you know, I, I do think about, um, 
like how how much more how much more room is there? How many more years are there before the things that we do, the way that we do them, even though we keep evolving, it just won't be part of the mix anymore, right? So um, I do understand that kind of desire and craving to create something um, with a legacy, right? Yes. And I do think in the world of marketing, beauty, personal care, household goods, you know, I grew up with brands that have been around had been around for decades. Right. And those heritage brands were really important in the consumer's um, mind. Right. Yes. They stood for something. And the consumer today doesn't um, doesn't have those feelings. Right. Legacy brands are not necessarily um, immediately thought of as like the most important um, in their category. Right. So there is a longing for a legacy. Yes. And storytelling as well. I think there's such nostalgia and even more than that, I think what we've found with Makeup Museum is that it's so much bigger than any, you know, than the founding team, than even, uh, you know, the advisory board. We have amazing makeup historians, people who are uh, very deep in the museum expertise space who are advising us. But it's also about showing that beauty is political, it's science, it's art. It's so much more than just this um, powder or this uh, liquid in a tube. It's about showing that this private moment of transformation that someone might have in their morning or, or before they go out at night does something to their day that changes how they interact with the world. And so we believe so strongly that there's something so profound about this. It deserves to be studied. Um, and, you know, historians generally agree that grooming and cosmetic usage is one of the oldest forms of human ritual. So we need to honor that in a space that has the holiness that museums have. Hey everybody, it's Jody. I know I'm interrupting this great podcast, but I do have an important message and it concerns the legal health of your business. I just did a recording recently with Steve Wagler of Emerge Council, and he taught me so much about um, how important it is to trademark your business the proper way. And he actually met me um, when he was considering starting his own brand. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he's an expert in brand protection, and he represents a number of small and even huge beauty brands. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you need to listen to this episode, but I would say that some of the most important ones are policing the market against counterfeiters. Like, this is a huge thing in our industry right now. Um, protecting the secrecy of product formulations, having strong, protectable brand names and unique packaging, enforcing MAP pricing policies and distribution channels, and documenting terms and conditions, and all the really important stuff, even influencer marketing, like everything, like needs to be protected. So um, I really like Steve. His episode's full of really important information. And Steve is a lawyer, and he understands that legal stuff can sometimes be a drain or a bore, but it's so important for the health of your business. So please call Steve. He offers a free initial consult, which I think is really great. Get to know him. He wants to get to know your business. And please tell him that I sent you. So you can go to EmergeCouncil.com, E-M-E-R-G-E-C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com, or call Steve at 1-800-EMERGE-0. So that's 1-800-E-M-E-R-G-E-0 which is a very cool phone number, and ask for Steve. Um, we have to protect the legal health of our business as much as we protect our distribution and our innovation. So this is really important stuff. 
So let's talk about the theme. So the, the launch theme is Pink Jungle. What does that mean? Pink Jungle comes from a 1958 Time Magazine cover story that uh, was the first time that Time Magazine really went deep into the beauty industry. And there is one sentence deep in this article that dubs this industry because of all of the fights between, you know, these uh, incredible entrepreneurs like Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden, Charles Rebson, um, and so many others. It dubbed the industry the Pink jungle. And we just thought that that was such a perfect way to title the first exhibition, which is focused on the 1950s. And um, we get asked sometimes, you know, why the 1950s to, for the debut exhibition? It was between the 1950s and the 1980s. Of course, given that I have a consumer insights background, I wanted to go out to future museum goers and ask them, what would you like to see from the Makeup Museum first? And so it was between those two decades. Um, and then we took that back to our advisory board and said, you know, between these two, which do we think would work best for the debut exhibition? And everyone was pretty much unanimous in saying, let's start with the 1950s because there have been in this decade incredible innovations that really changed the trajectory of the modern makeup industry. Between the marketing innovations, you see, um, for example, uh, color television debuting in the 50s in a way that became mainstream, that changes everything about how cosmetics is marketed. You have the invention in the late 50s of tube mascara. Most consumers today have never heard of cake mascara. They've certainly never seen one. Um, and so to be able to show people that, yes, mascara used to be applied with what looks like a tiny toothbrush, that we believe, especially for the younger generation, is going to be very powerful and hopefully inspire people to see that they themselves can create and innovate. I think that's what's so profound about that generation of entrepreneurs Estee Lauder, Hazel Bishop, Elizabeth Arden, Helena Rubinstein, and many others, in many cases, they were mixing formulas in their kitchens at a time when women couldn't necessarily um, leave the, the household to go and work um, professionally. So that is very inspiring to me. I know it's going to be inspiring to many others who visit and see that in action. Um, I did not know this about mascara. It's amazing. And we have a few different brands represented. So there's the classic Maybelline cake mascara. We also have um, some um, from Helena Rubinstein, I believe. So uh, there will be a few on display that people can compare. And I think that's another thing that's so exciting about Makeup Museum is that, you know, you can go to the Met or to the British Museum and see a coal eyeliner jar from ancient Egypt. But being able to see these artifacts over the course of time in that linear way is just, it really elevates, I think, the, the topic and seeing that evolution and then that next step of, oh, let's see where it might go in another 20 years or 50 years. So um, very inspiring, educational, and hopefully a lot of celebration, too, about how far things have come. You mentioned an artifact that's 5,000 years old. What yes. is that? We have um, a few items that are dated back to ancient Egypt, um, and those will be on display in the context of the cat eye being, of course, quintessential 1950s. Um, but we have, uh, you know, a lot of historians that have pointed out that around the 
you know, early 1900s, starting around 1920 and, and certainly into 1950 and even into the 60s, you have a lot, a lot of Egypt mania happening in the press, a ton of archaeological discoveries. So it makes sense that there'd be sort of this, um, this reference to uh, some of the ancient makeup looks that then debuts in the 50s and definitely into the 60s with the famous uh, Cleopatra movie as well. So um, lots of amazing connections to see. And I think, again, it's just so inspiring to see how far we've come and where things will go in the future. So are you the owners of these artifacts? Are you borrowing them from other collections? There's a mix. So the collection is being built through three ways. First, outright purchase to in enhance the Makeup Museum collection. Second is on loan, especially from corporate archives. And I'll get back to that in a moment. Um, and then finally, we have received so many different um, inquiries or submissions for donation. So that has been really exciting to see people from all over the world who say, you know, hey, I cleaned out that drawer from, you know, my great aunt's house and there's a few things that may be gems. And so through that, I mean, we've discovered some very early lipstick um, artifacts, for example, from the Morris Levy days. Um, so lots of different things that we are putting together. And, um, you know, of course, it's very important to talk with the experts to date those items properly and, and validate the authenticity of those items. Um, so we're going through all of that, but the corporate archives and those loans have also been very profound for the Makeup Museum. Um, one of the key examples of this is our partnership with Erno Laszlo, which is a, a legacy, to your point, kind of a heritage uh, skincare brand. Um, Dr. Erno Laszlo was a Hungarian skin doctor who was uh, supporting the skincare of amazing celebrities and icons um, throughout the early 1900s. Marilyn Monroe, Audrey Hepburn, Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, it's even said that JFK himself was using Erno Laszlo products. So they have done a remarkable job in preserving and acquiring a lot of items related to their brand. And on display at the Makeup Museum, there will be items from Greta Garbo and Marilyn Monroe, the actual bottles that were on these women's vanities. That to me is so cool and um, something that just deserves a special place like the Makeup Museum. So I am um, in the you know marketing business, advertising. Is there um, a history of advertising within, within this decade? Yes, absolutely. It's actually the first gallery. So um, the Makeup Museum lobby area, which is themed like the Pink Jungle, as um, you can, you'll be able to see on social, um, it, the, the first entryway to actually start the experience the visitor will go through the red door. Now, most people may think, oh, it's just a really neat, you know, beautiful red door, but it actually has a very deep history related to the Elizabeth Arden brand. Um, people may recall that the Elizabeth Arden salon was called the Red Door Salon. Um, it was it was so avant-garde in those days. If you imagine walking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and there's this bright red door, there's nothing else like it on the street. That's going to attract so much attention. And um, there's also uh, a sense that it was in solidarity um, around feminism and suffrage, the suffrage movement. So lots of history to the iconic red door. And once you go through that red door, we have our gallery that focuses on imagery of the 1950s. And there's a lot of really important things to talk about there from the um, 
explosion of television in that era to uh, the male gaze really being used to sell cosmetics. Um, we have some amazing ads where you know, it talks all about how you should use makeup to get a man or keep a man. Um, this was really, really uh, key to that time period, you know, that post-war time period. And also really broaching um, a lot of sensitive topics as well around how it's no secret that the 1950s were a time of racial segregation in the United States. There's a lot of, um, we have a, a bunch of magazines on display, including from Ebony and Jet Magazine, which um, were started uh, in the 40s and 50s, that show this really painful moment of segregation. And even, you know, looking at advertisements for skin lightening creams. I mean, these are very painful parts of history, but it's important to contextualize that and have the right experts who can provide uh, the knowledge about those moments in time. Well, I'm so excited to go when I can go. Um, but before we close out, will you tell us um, and give a shout out to your partners, right? Since um, yes. putting this together is no easy feat. No, not at all. So we have, we could not do this without the amazing founding team. So shout outs, of course, to my co-founders, Caitlin Collins and Rachel Goodwin, and also to our advisory team, Gabriela Hernandez from Besame Cosmetics has been an amazing resource. Louise Young in the UK, um, Madeline Marsh, uh, lots of amazing historians on our staff, and also to our brand sponsors who have helped to fund this um, experience and to get this off the ground. So Nord's our exclusive retail partner, Erno Laszlo, Alcone Company, Gibodan, who is actually going to be scenting the exhibition. Um, so we couldn't do it without them. We're so grateful and um, excited also that all of those brand partners have a very authentic 1950s connection. Um, and oh, I, I almost forgot Conair as well, which was founded in 1959. So um, full disclosure, Conair is my client, <laughs> which is how I met Doreen. <laughs> and we have some amazing you can check out on makeup museum officials instagram we have an incredible conversation with sophia who is the granddaughter of leandro rizzuto who founded conair a visionary in the beauty industry who helped to transform it's interesting kind of taking it back to where we started in covid times uh that you know that bringing the salon home enabling people to do their hair at home in the same way that they would a 